in a world where speculators and journalists alike know the price of everything and the value of nothing, where deeply flawed notions of market demand curves continue to reign supreme. One bear and one lady demand only the supply of your curves and your art. It's knackers and the vag. Comrade listener, this is knackers and the vag. Clearly, you are a person who either likes a spot of audio self-harm or enjoys watching a desiccated perimenopausal woman who is basically a wet bag comprised of professional disaster, gifted of nothing but the ability to talk about nothing for hours on end, hence the bear. Uh, I am the Vag, my co-host for the dawn of a new post-financialised, post-capitalist era, is a bear, a mute bear called Knackers. I give him now to a venerable guest on world tour for the 94th birthday of his charming mother, Pat, who has recently told me one Professor Steve Keane is enough. There is clearly deep affection between you and your mother, Professor Steve Keane, a man drummed out of the country, essentially, for his heterodox economic views. Joining us uh, this evening, or indeed this morning, whatever time you listen to this, to explain, well, I hope a lot of his frustrations with the idiocy in this servile country, Mm. Um, but, you know, also your experience of just being treated like a lump of shit. I mean, you know, you have mates, I know. Mm. You have important mates. Like you, you gossip with like Giannis Varoufakis, don't you? You and Giannis are mates. Yep, we go back about close to 20 years. The uh, great um, heterodox economist, Michael Hudson, recommends you at every opportunity. Uh, He was, I believe, Trotsky's godson, is he? That? was indeed. Yeah, I found out um, when my was with him at a conference in the Levy Institute in upstate New York, and my then girlfriend was chatting to him. I was talking to I've forgotten who another leading heterodox economist walked towards the banks of the Hudson. And I turned back to see my girlfriend genuflecting and bowing towards Michael. I go, "What the hell's going on here?" He catches up, and she explains that he's Trotsky's godson. Can I recommend his book? I mean, like. I don't like this economic shit. I'd rather bang on about television programs and the culture. But uh, his his book, um, which is called uh, oh, the host book, what's it called? Is oh, it the, the, uh, feeding the host, killing the host, killing, killing the host. Killing the me, host. Yeah. Um, it's feeding the parasite is what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't want to mislead you. He's not a Marxist, comrades. But uh, his explanation of 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 debt, uh, killing the host, is the the popular work. It's very good. Um, Steve's book, um, Debunking Economics, is designed for, uh, yes, well, he says it's designed for a beginner audience, but I'm going to dumb him down to my level. Uh, And also David Graeber, who I I admire very much. I mean, I wish he'd shut up with all that anarchist shit, but, (laughs) I mean, it's like the state needs to wither away, Graeber, but he's good fun. He's good fun. David's a good bloke. I think I last saw David about four weeks ago in London. And he just got married recently. 
you know, intriguingly and, enough. I mean, and you, it's not as though you go around boasting, but, you know, around about 2008, like a lot of people, I thought, oh, things aren't looking so good, are they? Mm. Um, the West appears to be um, you, decaying um, in a very real sense. And I noticed that uh, a number of these economists, not that there's that many, um, I mean, there's very few orthodox or classical Marxist economists around, which is why I'm talking to Minsky over here. No, I'm joking. I like him. He's, yeah, he's mouthy and um, he got chucked out of Australia, which, as you know, is an honour. Mm, definitely. Um, but, and also Anne Pettifor. I've, I've seen you talk with Anne Pettifor. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I think I've told you about this before, like there's a book called The Production of Money. Yep. Uh, again, a really good introductory guide to what the fuck banks do. Now, especially in Australia, right, which is a – well, Steve will, Steve will explain, you know, the so-called Australian economic miracle uh, to you in 30 seconds or less. Um, you know, what is it? We're about to have our 30th birthday of, of uh, uninterrupted growth. Mm, yeah, Which yeah. is actually an uninterrupted Ponzi scheme. Yes, I know. Well, I know from reading you and some of the others, but concentration on that sort of sort of stuff is, is difficult, but these fuckers somehow make it in, intelligible to idiots. Clearly, I'm the idiot. A number of those people that I've just mentioned published and said there is a global financial crisis coming, you know, the the most catastrophic economic crisis, and you believe that capitalism is crisis-prone, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You don't believe that, you know, you can drive it like a precision No, like the, neo, the neoclassicals, the people who dominate the profession have got this obsession with equilibrium. Yeah. And uh, my most recent experience of that was at a conference on digital money uh, in Sweden where the, there's a representative, quite fittingly, of the real estate industry turned up. And within the first sentence, he'd said the word equilibrium three times. And they simply see equilibrium as the, as the defining tendency of capitalism, which is almost completely yeah. oxymoronic. Uh, if any capital has any strengths, equilibrium is not one of them. Yeah. There, so there are two popular justifications that you hear or read for this widely held view mm. that capitalism is something that will, you know, inevitably um, attain a state of perfect balance. Mm. And, you know, you might fucking believe it. I'm sorry you're wrong. You're very wrong, but there's still hope you know, before we all wither and die in a white nationalist war and or you know, we, we, we sear under the sun or suddenly the seawater reaches our armpits and we're gasping, gasping, gasping for a little oxygen. I mean, we're, we're fucked, aren't we? But we may as well analyse it while we're on the way. Yeah, I want, I want the survivors to know what the hell went wrong. That's yeah. pretty much my orientation to how I write. But they'll be 2,200 billionaires. They'll be that, that mob, won't they? They probably will get away. And the old, uh, if you've ever seen, seen the old movie or read the book by Ben Elton Stark. Oh, I yes, yes, a, I remember that. That's a fairly good rendition of what's likely to happen. Yeah, it's it's about 20 years old now. It wasn't bad. It was back when Ben was, was still funny. Yeah. So there are two rationales you hear for, oh, like capitalism is perfect. I mean, it's it took a while to emerge and become the international force of nobility that we know today, right? Mm-hmm. So it took a long time to Yeah, but it, uh, it, it came out of capitalism really began in England in about the 1600s, 1700s in terms of becoming the dominant social system growing out of feudalism. Mm. And you had a rebellion against the constriction of the feudal system. And a part of the feudal system was this belief you had a preordained role. You were a king, you were a lord, you were a serf, 
Uh, you had merchants who were the deviants in the system. Mm. Anybody could become a merchant is fundamentally once they got money to you know buy spices in one part of the world and sell it in another. And the merchants were always railing against the constriction of the feudal system. What do you mean that the merchants were deviants? They were the ones who didn't quite fit into the feudal pattern. The right. Fe- the feudal pattern, you had a, a feudal, you know, it was a block of land, a substantial block of land, tens of thousands of acres, where the people who were resident of the land became, were owned by the, by the lord, uh, but not quite as slaves. They had rights yep. uh, that slaves didn't have. So, so they sort of didn't uh, fit into the way that what was becoming a, a, you know, a mass of people who were organised not just in small groups but, uh, you know, organised as a nation. Yeah. And um, you, as a nation state. So you, you find the feudal, the feudal thieves, as they were known. So they weren't behaving properly but also, sorry, I want to reel it back because I am – I console myself uh, with reading some of the correspondence of of Marx where he just says, look, I I mean, he doesn't say this literally, but he just says, I would really rather lie in bed all day reading Balzac novels and drinking wine, but I have to understand this fucking economic thing. He literally did say, he told Engels once, I'll be finished with this economic shit in about six months. Yeah. He was wrong by about six decades. Hey, actually, I I will say if you you are one of the Marxy types – Right, uh, Steve. Actually, you know, despite the fact that he does not, you know, bow with with sufficient reverence at the brilliance of Marx, you gave me some very good advice, which was, "I'll look read the Grundrisse." Yeah, absolutely. Right? And that is very helpful advice because there's no way any human person can stay awake for Capital Volume Two. Picks up again in three, which mm-hmm, Friedrich yeah. compiled. He'd learned to write a bit more mm. uh, convincingly by then. So read the Grundrisse. You know, that's your cheat sheet. Do read one if you can ever be bothered or don't I, or just listen, you know, to uh, the many, many five or so excellent podcasts. This one are uh, notably excluded most of the time except when we have international star and Putin puppet Steve Keane. Those who don't understand his work call him – well, all sorts of things that I don't even care to repeat. Those who do know his work call him an interesting proposition. Just to uh, restate what I was saying earlier, so um, what you may find is that people, uh, again, take the bear and throw it at me when I go on too long. As I, oh fuck you! Um, <laughs> was, that was a little yeah, just, good yeah, advice. Shot your load early. Yeah, for people like me who don't have an angles, right, and who mm. who hate doing this sort of thing. Mm. But know that the, you know, societies and, and what we call politics, whether of the parliamentary or real life variety, are intimately connected. You know, the very idea of like yourself, like how you feel, it's all connected with the way we survive, which is currently under capitalism. So the two major rationales that people unthinkingly or, you know, quite laboriously give about why capitalism is you know, human life perfected. And you're not like, you don't mind a bit of capitalism, do you? Like, no, like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in, in one sense, I'm an entrepreneur. And the thing I think about capitalism, the reason that it's, uh, that it overtook other social systems uh, is that it's the second most innovative social system we've ever had. Well, your mate Graeber doesn't agree with that now. You know, like capitalism is not innovative. Oh, no, it's, no, it's it, it started, it's, it, gives a, it gives a capacity for innovation which then strangles. But 
fundamentally. It's crisis prone. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not just crisis prone. It, it's the accumulation of debt. That's the thing that yeah. David and myself and Anne and Michael all have in common, seeing Rontiers take over the system via the accumulation Please of debt and strangling innovation. Please explain the word Rontier. Hmm? Please explain Rontier, the word Rontier. Rontier is somebody who makes money by not doing anything but by owning things. And fundamentally with debt you own, whoever's, whoever owes you debt, mm. you own part of their productive capacity. And the tendency for those debt claims to rise over time stifles the innovation that makes capitalism work in the first place. Yeah, which is, you know, if you're turned on to hip bro Carl and acolytes is a very Marxist thing to say. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I, as much as I, you know, adore his compassion and what whatnot, I mean, you go back and listen to Top Silk and a refugee advocate, uh, Julian Burnside, when, you know, I mean, Julian actually said that if you work hard and you excel, then you, you know, deserve the benefits. Uh, he seems to believe that that's still possible. But, of course, it's not because the, the people with the most wealth in the world go the most power basically go to the letterbox and get a check. Mm, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the L'Oreal heiress is probably, the, I think, David's favourite example uh, in um, in debt the first 5,000 years. I think I'm thinking of David's book. It may be Max, um, um, Felix Martins. But she's by far the wealthiest person. Because debt the first 5,000 is, again, like hugely entertaining. It, yeah. it takes most of its inspiration from your mate Michael Hudson's book, doesn't it? Well, Michael, yeah, Michael and his friend Cornelia Wunsch are the ones who did a lot of the anthropological research into the evolution of hierarchical societies starting in Samaria and finding the practice of a debt jubilee being a regular part of those societies surviving. So that's debt forgiveness. You know, you can see that in, um, you know, if you if you are tempted to read the news about the US election. Oh, Christ. You know, yeah, the debt jubilee for getting of abolishing student debt. You yeah. know, Sanders is recommending... Um, of course, many people aren't students. Um, you know, the Greens are trying to adopt it. I mean, it doesn't work the same here in, in Australia. But, I mean, you know, this idea of debt forgiveness has happened many times. Yeah. And Hudson actually sort of started as a, like a historian of like Roman shit and whatnot, didn't he? Even before Rome, it goes back to Samaria. You go back to yeah. about 3000 BC and the, the, the first... If you think about um, Mesopotamia, uh, you know, the... the, the uh, what are they no, called? see, too much history. I don't care. Okay, okay. I don't, uh, no, <laughs> no, like, I mean, I'm... Yeah, but back to Sumerian you're going to use other You're going to use other complex analogies and words that I need explaining. Mm. So, again, you don't don't listen to this bit, Steve. But the, the, mm. So mm-hmm. so one is the idea that um, uh, capitalism is the truest reflection of human nature because we're all competitive and because all, all, all the ex- meritocracy, blah, 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 right? So... Um, this is somehow the natural extension of how people truly are. Um, and I, oh, my goodness, you know, sat, went to the Telstra Women in Business Awards for, you know, the free beer. <laughs> and also it was a bit of a laugh. And it was yeah. just this, I mean, you see these obscene displays among you know, women of power now mm. where it's like, don't have any shame. You go, girl. And, you know, you have power like the men now. I mean, Mm. well, you know, what the fuck did they do with it? And, you know, there was a woman sitting beside me and she said, I think you'll find that all structures in society have been leading up to capitalism because there's always leaders and there's always losers. I'm like, are you like some kind of equality lady? You Mm. know, she's like, no, I just believe in equal opportunity. So if we just get rid of the racism and all of that. So this can be a very liberal, nice belief. It was very much 
the campaign message of of Hillary 2016, you know, mm. that we, if we just get all sorts of, you know, diverse leaders and billionaires, then the world will be better because I don't know, somehow women in particular are are gifted of of mystical powers and we will resist the world made by men and make mm. it fairer, as so many people have shown us, um, including Margaret Thatcher. You know, yeah, uh, where a, female, a female sociopath is not much different to a male sociopath, has been my judgment of that. No. I mean, haven't you seen Game of Thrones? Like, so say, not a nice person. <laughs> Did you watch it, by the way? Yeah, I watched most of it. I didn't it's watch the last. shit. No, it's, qual- it's quality stuff until the final series, by the sounds of which I haven't bothered watching. Oh, my gosh. Next time, um, because I had quite a few requests on the, on the Patreon, mm-hmm. I have had people saying, can you give a good economic analysis of Game of Thrones. So we'll talk about that next time. Mm. It, what do no. you think of the Iron Bank, though? Oh, the Iron Bank's reasonable, but it's sort of it's not woven in properly. I mean, if you had the Iron Bank in there properly, people would be compelled by their debts to invade their neighbours. Uh, it all began with throwing a kid off the, off a parapet instead. That was the start of the battle. Well, and, you know, power incestuously feeding on its own flesh. Yeah. As Jamie and Cersei were like, I mean, which I thought was interesting. It reminded me of the Labor Party. <laughs> Only better sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Labor Party and the and the ACT, but definitely better sex. Mm, mm. Yeah. But what about like economic stagnation for like six centuries? How did they do that? I mean, it seemed like quite arable land. Like yeah. they had economic stagnation in um, Westeros for six hundred years. How was how was that possible? I th- I think they, just, they, they what they. Well, if you had a feudal system and you really imposed the feudal system, you didn't get development of new technology over time. And this is the point, that the, this, the sound point in favour of capitalism is that people are trying to break out of, if you want to get an advantage in capitalism, you invented the classic old phrase, you invent a better mousetrap. Mm. Now, if you look at where the first mousetraps were invented, the answer is China. And China had gunpowder, China had uh, navigable ships, China had a whole range of technologies the West didn't have. Uh, including you know, weapons, so the the, the, old, the original firecrackers, mm. uh, well before they were developed in Europe, and yet it didn't turn into an advanced civilization. It had about a thousand years start on on the West, and part of it was it was challenging the power of the emperor. So this stuff was yeah. suppressed or turned into games. Uh, whereas in Europe, uh, with a weaker feudal system, particularly in in the UK in England, uh, the the merchants could be of innovating and breaking out of the feudal constraints and using this stuff not as, you know, firework demonstrations in honour of the emperor, but for, uh, you know, technological uh, blowing up, exploding uh, seams above mines to get to to the ore you wanted to mine, et cetera, et cetera. So capitalism does spire innovation. And it, that's- it does. And, I mean, that that is a difficult ethical position because, you know, you get to the bit in Marx where he says, well, of course it's necessary. I mean, he describes with, I, I think still, I mean, even though he's talking about the factory, which we in the West uh, rarely see, you know, all that filthy work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you'd agree with me that the colonial project is ongoing, right? Yeah, but the, the colonial project actually weakens England. It didn't strengthen it. You go back and see where Wakefield began by arguing in favour of uh, British Britain becoming a colonial power uh, uh, and Rhodes as well. It was because they saw the working class demanding bread, 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 and they thought the only way we can actually uh, stop political revolution in the UK 
in England is by uh, becoming a colonial power. Yes, and inventing racism, yeah, you know, large yeah. scale, like institutionalising yeah. racism. This is not to say and that there was What that, that meant was England stopped developing its industry and within 30 years it was overtaken by Germany before Germany even existed. Oh, yeah, the, the, the things that you know. But again, um, another, uh, another good argument for capitalism, that capitalism is um, by nature dynamic and it's certainly the argument that Marx makes, right? Mm. I mean, I think anybody... Should you know? I mean, and capitalism does look. Uh, I hate to say it, but sometimes capitalism makes certain pockets of the world live better lives. Mm. You know, usually predicated on all sorts of nasty bigotry and you know the psychological wage of being not brown or not black or not man or not woman or whatever. But it does have benefits. Um, Steve's position is that continually needs to change and I'm more of a, you know, violent overthrow of the state, which is just a committee for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie, you know, fuck the system kind of person. So that's essentially where we, so again, another great argument for capitalism is that it's innovative. The other one about it being natural is just stupid, like state of nature arguments are always dumb, right? Yeah. Don't you agree? Well, if you look look back and see what the state of nature argument is, the best system we ever had was a pre-agricultural Cro-Magnon society. That's where the major innovations occurred because we, we lived in small bands, small communities, up to 150 people in a, in a, in a collective, up to about, say, 10,000 in a tribe, and you got your status by what you contributed to the mm. collective. So you competed with each other to be the best flint maker. There's competition and, 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 you, and it was a gifting society. We'd gift to each other rather than bartering. The whole idea of barter is nonsense, and David and Michael uh, cover that very well. You've recently been in Beijing, yes? Oh, not recently. But about, oh. You go there regularly, but about two years yeah, ago. I've read a little bit about this. I don't know much about it, but there are the, those sorts of ideas, those sorts of techniques are being used as a way of encouraging innovation. So they don't, you know, there's a very different idea in China to intellectual property. But, you know, there are people put in bright people put in rooms and, uh, you know, everyone can steal everybody else's idea. And, the, you know, the Chinese approach to innovation is is not purely capitalist as we understand it in the West. There's an it? extent to that. I mean, yeah, it's it, you, you need a certain amount of being able to hang on to your innovation to motivate it in the first place. There's a, a great uh, uh, actual genuine venture capitalist called Bill Janeway mm. that I recommend reading along with Mar- Mariana Mazzucuto. And they both talk about what actually enables innovation to take place. And Mariana focuses on the state end of that bill on the on the capitalist end. What they both say fundamentally is innovation occurs when you can afford waste, when you afford to make mistakes. And the question is who, what organisations can afford to make mistakes? Yeah. And the I, answers are the state at one extreme and extremely wealthy individuals at the other. Yeah. And in in one, in one case, the state does it because you have like a competitive goal with another state, let's get to the moon first. So there's, America was more innovative when it had the Russians to fight against uh, an, an ideological sense than it's ever been mm. since. Uh, but capitalists, when they have large amounts of money, uh, they can have failures, but if they get one success, it's a spectacular success. But, I mean, also, uh, this is – I mean, and you don't loathe the arts, do you? You probably like a little bit of the rock and roll music. Yeah, a bit of a rock and roll. I even enjoy the bit of opera every now and then. Oh, do you? Mm. Oh, well, Europe's changed you. Oh, yeah, like a European know. girlfriend's helped out on that front. So 
when your uh, material needs are satisfied, uh, money or not, mm. there can also be innovations in culture. You know, so you're not made of stone. You do, you like the arts, right? Oh, yeah. You, you, you know, the, the refinement in life, whether that is um, being able to genuinely love another person or pursue a hobby. And I mean, you do things, don't you? You have things in your life. Yeah, you well, do I mean, other than you know arguing with Paul Krugman. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be more to life than arguing with Paul Krugman. I've got to agree with that. Yeah, you won that one. Oh, you he didn't win that one. He walked away with the bat and ball and declared the game over. Yeah, he lost it hands down. It was, you know, I've, I made one little misstep. I took him on loanable funds and stuffed up what he thought loanable funds was partially, but otherwise he uh, he walked into a cage he wasn't expecting to have twelve fists coming at him rather than just two. So, so uh, money or not, but I mean, getting back to the idea of like small scale societies, mm. you know, cultural innovations are possible when people you know, they have their needs catered for. I you, mean, you've got, you've got to you've got to have sufficient livelihood to be able to you know, enjoy anything other than sheer survival. Yeah. And the whole focus on efficiency is completely distorting what capitalism, what human society is really about. Yeah. It's not about efficiency. It's having room to explore and 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 to have. Uh, an excess that you can use for things that aren't necessary for complete survival. So just to perhaps, I hope I'm uh, not paraphrasing badly, but you and I would both agree that to think about human beings in the state of nature and then make any kind of argument from that or, you know, to Well, it actually leads against the idea of capitalism because those societies were cooperative. Yeah, I, you know a lot of shit, but I'm just trying to bring it back yeah. to hell and level. <laughs> We'll forgive him because he knows things and he's and he's bad and he has a touch of the Paul Keatings about him. Like Paul Keating, the the accord like ruined my life and the lives of many Australians. Oh, it certainly did, yeah. And I mean, they sold out land rights. I, all of this. I don't know if you saw from Europe uh, the outpouring of just like rotten jism on the corpse. Of Bob oh, Bobby Hawk, Hawk, yeah. the greatest Australian. Australia was never so good. I mean, to me, it just looked like the sick nostalgia of make America great again. Like, okay, so when was America great? When was Australia great? Like, it wasn't, you know, I mean, he went on the telly and he had a cry and he did a good job of looking like a working class man, which he was not. Mm. Uh, Hawk and Keating both got rolled by The Economist and I saw it happen. I was working in a part of the called called the Business Union Consultation Unit, otherwise yeah. abbreviated as Buck U. And um, oh, yeah, got rolled. Come on, yes, we did. Uh, because the Keating got rolled. Keating was Hayek mad. Keating Keating swallowed a first year economics textbook. That's what got him rolled. And he thought we're going to be better economic managers than the Conservatives, and, uh, and we'll do identity politics. Yeah, well, even... and I literally t- I didn't tell Keating, but I told a few of his uh, acolytes. Uh, at the time when I was involved through peripherally through the Labor Party. Again, again, I'm sorry, I've got to, I haven't got to my second question and there's so much to (laughs) ask you. Um, I will say that I recommend as part of your Patreon and of course you you go to Steve's Mm. Patreon, how much are you, you're actually making a living out of this thing? Yeah, it's a bit less than my professorial salary but enough to... um, enough to stay alive and enough to continue being a pain in the arse in Europe. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Where, you know, pains in the arse are like faintly more acceptable, Mm. except in France where they'll be shot with tear gas. That's true. And um, solidarity to comrades, the the yellow vests and now the black vests. Absolutely no coverage of that. But anyway, 
so so these are two justifications for capitalism. You know, one that uh, it's natural; it's just what human beings mm. do. Steve could talk eloquently and uh, with some academic rigor and dirty jokes for some time about how it's not natural, even though you know he thinks that capitalism can be redeemed by you know resetting it. Um, not the most optimistic of, um, <laughs> of, of, of chaps, but you do, you do believe that. You do believe that there can be an economic reset. And the very strange thing about like this monumental financial crisis, like not just, you know, it's not as though they didn't feel it in the, in the USA. Mm. It's not as though there weren't 6 million households suddenly homeless. Mm. It was, it was like the 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 epicenter of you know the so called free world, the 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 moral guardian, the place that transports so much culture, and you know, and in which many Australians you know really believe in you know, perversely. Mm. You know, even there, there was disaster, and nothing changed. But of course, in 1929, when the Great Depression hit the West, we changed the economic software, more or less. Like, so there was a response. In a ni- dramatic response. In, in 1929. Yeah, people don't realise how small government was before the Great Depression. American um, government sector was something order of between 5 and 10% of GDP okay, before yeah, the Great sorry, Depression. GDP. GDP gross, is. Gross domestic product, the amount produced in an economy in one year. And when we hear the word growth, which you're framing. I'm very gross. Uh, yeah. uh, growth. No, mm. not gross. You're not gross. You're just I try to be gross occasionally. Yeah, but I mean, like, who are you talking to? (laughs) That's true. I'm also, like, a working class, you know, Catholic with a chip on her shoulder. Mm -hmm. Like, you know. Yeah, I'm not that gross. No, that's what you are. You're a working class Catholic with a chip on your shoulder. True. That's why I like you, Mm -hmm. you know, like Keating. Like, even though he did so many I enjoyed Keating, I've got to say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. He was just so funny. Mm. Like, Mm. I know, and I will not disclose their names, but I know radical activists who will... Just half a beer say, oh, he was funny though, wasn't he? Mm. He insulted me once when I'm feeling sad. Mm. I remember the day that Keating asked his secretary to send me an email saying, no, I won't speak to that jumped up little shock doc. I I was just like, oh, he knows who I am. (laughs) Transformed Australia, you know, Mm. like like ushered in the neoliberal age. Which is what he did. Fucking ruined the union movement. Gave us Sally McManus, who has said one radical thing, which was sometimes uh, you should break the rules and go on strike. Try going to your ACTU-approved union and suggesting a strike and mm. breaking the rules. It'd be no. No, what we're going to do is we're going to show you some American techniques that worked very well for Barack Obama to get elected in 2008, if you want to look it up. Marshall Gans. Fucking, have you heard of this guy? It's just, you know, more American. Like, you know, so one radical thing and it's all anodyne, blah, 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 sorry, better get back to the other popular rationale for capitalism, which is it's only bad apples and people who are not behaving well that ruin it, mm. right? Yeah. And it's like how can you how can you have your sort of like capitalism ghetto and eat it too? It's like if it's the perfect st- uh, system and the perfect extension um, and the true morality of human beings, like why, how can people ruin it then? Yeah. If it was that strong, it couldn't be ruined. This is the ironic thing because the, the arguments they make 
if it was as good as they argue it is, then it wouldn't have breakdowns. No. But it does have breakdowns, and they're not because of individual behaviour, they're because of systemic tendencies in capitalism. And this is where, uh, you know, the, this, the type of analysis that Marx began, uh, and, and which, which I combined with Schumpeter and combined with Minsky, that's, that's the realistic vision. It does have crises, but it's in that process, it's more creative in terms of what it, what it builds in new technology and so on than a society that doesn't have those booms and slumps. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with a mass of people and, you know, I mean, certainly there probably are people who may be more gifted and farsighted than others. And it's, you know, I look at a, you know, for all these, these douche lordiness, like you look at a chap like Elon Musk and mm. you think you actually do want to take the world by the throat and shake it until it changes. Yeah. Like you're not a Bolshevik. You are far too entranced with the idea of technology only. You don't want to really transform the way that people live, but you do want to change the world. Yeah, you know? and and his success in terms of getting SpaceX from a non-existent company uh, into the first company ever to land a rocket on its ass without exploding uh, is a dramatic achievement in human history. We'll yeah. look back and see that as uh, the, that the day of the the first rocket successfully landing will be. I think seen as as important as the Declaration of Independence in America one of these days. Mm. Truly, no, because well, the West is just crumbling. No, the West might crumble, but I think the one chance we have for survival as a species is getting off planet. And the very, I, see, I don't even want to talk to you, you don't? about that's, that. Well, no. that's my little position. I'm a fan of Musk as well, and yeah, capitalism see, gave him. Well, a where do you live? What's the city that you make your home now? Well, out of allegedly London, but it's normally Amsterdam. Yeah. See, you know. We'll all live on Mars. I just, I mean, I can't conceive of that. I have to hold on to some, uh, at least have a vision of a, 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 a planet that we can inhabit past 2050. Oh, I definitely want to inhabit the planet. But I mean, if you look at the time of human society, we've once gone through another filter like that about, uh, as far as we know, about 75, maybe 150,000 years ago when there were about 300 of us. Yes. Okay. We need our, we need our rafts. And I see what he's doing as the potential raft for humanity. Well, you know, look, I'm still going to be a bit like revolutionary if you if you don't mind. Like, okay. I want look, to think I'll, that I'll, I'll, I'll put my faith in my engineers. Okay, all right. I I believe in the power of the mass. I think that you know we we can't trust it all to great men. Um, no, no, it's not a great man, but it's it's you know great. We're, we we don't weave webs. We weave technology. Yeah. So what we can say then, you know, so this idea that capitalism is 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 natural. I mean, if you are, and I'm very sorry about this, like a nice liberal progressive, well, first check your privilege, uh, as the kids say, I believe on the Twitter. But just sort of think about how that argument of you know, the state of nature is uh, used and, and wonderfully challenged by trans activists, for example, who will often say, you know, there is no such thing as essential womanhood. I simply feel more comfortable or essential manhood or there is no such thing for me in my experience of the world's gender. Like, you know, like if you're a nice progressive, you're, you're, you're probably very pro-trans, but like think it through, right? Like think it through. And have a read um, or have a view of the uh, very, very amusing, also a fellow Patreon person, mm. ContraPoints, who talks about that concept. So just sort of like think about gender or how, you know, race has for so long had this 
essentialist view that um, people who are not white are somehow, you know, genetically inferior or culturally inferior. Any kind of essentialism is shit. I think what Keane and I can agree on is perhaps that we need to live together, human beings. We're social. Yeah. I mean, that's just sort of in our biology. In fact, your mate Aristotle says that, like, man is by nature social. Yeah, and, like, we've, uh, we used to live in tribes of 150 people and that was probably, in terms of human interaction, that was the ideal size for us to interact with. Yeah. We've created hierarchical societies that go to, you know, a factor of a thousand yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a very, you know, that's a very popular view among anthropologists that um, at most times we're in contact with about 150 people. But That's all we can yeah. handle in our brains. But we, we, we make up societies that, that give us larger groupings. Oh. Is that where I, that's where I... But, no, I just... I just want to get it down to what we can agree on, right? Mm -hmm. So we can agree that we are by nature social. Absolutely. I'm not going to put a number on it. Yeah. Because, you know, I I love everybody very deeply and want to give every individual. Except Scott Morrison, In the world. No, I I actually. Got to have some exceptions. No, I like the idea of people theoretically. I just can't fucking stand them. And I have very poor social skills. I hope your mum, Pat, likes me. I'm sorry. I tried to be polite. She's good. I, I bought her some Drambuie. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, we'll have that over dinner tonight. That'll go down well. You'll pair it with with something excellent, I'm sure. Anyway, we can agree that we are by nature social. Mm-hmm. Like we've got no hope. We essentially die if we don't have a pet, if we don't have a mother, yeah. right, or a, a primary caregiver. Like I think we need one until we're eight or something like that, or we just die. Oh no, we 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 couldn't survive without our parents. Yeah. Absolutely not. Whereas other animals. A horse lands on the on the ground within within two minutes. It's walking. Within five minutes, it's eating grass. Uh, horses could survive, you know, with their parents could ignore them. We can't. So, if you're keen on the uh, you know evolution of a Western thought, or you're particularly a big fan of the Game of Thrones as um, you know an organizing, uh, or you know of, that somehow shows you the basic organizing principles of of, of human uh, societies which we now agree, you and me, are inevitable, um, uh, uh, the analysis of Game of Thrones is that it's uh, the Hobbesian view, right? And so mm. he's like one of these old state of nature Western philosophers, which mm. is that um, I'm sure you remember the quote that life is short, brutal. British, yeah, brutal. short British, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, if we don't have civilization, which is an invention of the UK or, you know, Britain, England, uh, then we'll Short, all... Short, nasty and British. Yes, then we'll all hurt each other mm. and we need the light of civilization, you know, which is... And in, and in fact, we, we had that before. Civilization got in the way of that light. Uh, civilization, in, well, human societies are inevitable. They're more efficient. Uh, we need uh, caregivers to survive into adulthood and reproduce and all of mm. that. So we can agree about the human state of nature like Aristotle, even though he goes on with a lot of boring crap, man or humankind is by nature social. I think another thing we might agree on is that we like to do things. And yeah, we, and yeah. we like to change things. We like to break things to see how they break and how they can be mended. Mm. Or sometimes we just like to smash things. Or sometimes we might like to make a hydrogen car. Mm. Uh, and this is a collective uh, effort because we are social. So we can agree on those two things, right? Yeah, yeah. and they feed off each other. And so still... You're okay. I'm not going to challenge you on this because there's still other stuff to ask you. I'm so sorry. Mm. What time is dinner with Pat? Oh, no, that's... Um, it's still okay? No, it's actually going off with uh, a journalist in the city and that's 7 yeah. o'clock. So I've got till about 6. I, I love this actually. Like I'm getting Steve Keen's time. And at this time of like uh, 
crisis, economic crisis in Australia that, you know, even though the left Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, won't admit that it's so, you feel it in your own life and if not in yours, you, you see it in those of your friends, your your, your, your kids, your olds, you know. I, I mean, I see it at the supermarket, right, and I've used this. Like in the last year, and I'm confident that supermarkets do a lot more serious and objective research and development and, and you know, customer-focused stuff mm. than, uh, you know, governments or attitude mm. surveys, right? Like as much as attitude surveys are interesting, I mean, do you ever pay any heed to them or...? Not particularly, because yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, one of the things that you, you and I agree on as well with Marx's statement is men make their own history, but not at times and circumstances of their own choosing. Yeah, the 18th premiere, it's such and, beautiful. And writing. my focus is on the on the times and circumstances, and economic theory is far too much to emphasise our, our freedom to make choices yeah. without looking at constraints and how they shape what we can and can't do. But it, but again, you know, also, uh, you know, it's dynamic. It changes. It's a collective effort. Um, yeah. So we like to make things. We like to change things. Yeah. And so even though it's not conceded by the apparently leftist leader of the Labor Party or explained in any meaningful way in newspapers, which is, you know, and Steve actually bothers to explain this stuff. And fuck me, he's got runs on the board. You know, the global financial crisis is not well explained in the big short. I mean, it's a no, it's cute, not. it's a cute movie. It's a cute movie. But they talk about like individual failure, yeah. corruption. No, it's sort of something that was going to happen or could have happened and did happen because of, you know, deregulation. And, it, you know, you say, oh, well, it's just like greed and all of that. Anyway, all that aside, life is shit in, or getting steadily more shit in Australia, even if you don't mm. feel it in an economic sense as I do because – you know, the supermarket, you can go to the supermarket now and the robot checkouts now, mm -hmm. they have, well, they used to have split payment between card and cash, which I used to avail myself of now mm -hmm. that my income has um, dropped and nobody wants me. Um, yeah, but now they have split between two credit cards. Like You can split a bill between two credit yeah, cards. Yeah, you can go on and the buy, your, the supermarket. buy your groceries. Bloody and you hell, go to I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, well, it happened uh, recently. So I, th I think that that... that but they're a warehouse, you know, because like I've, I spoke to Martin North last week, another, uh, I highly recommend looking at Martin North's podcast. And Martin pointed out that when it comes to loans, banks are giving splitting loans. So that in one household, there might be seven mortgages. And what the, the APRA is looking at is the mortgages without aggregating them by household. So they sort of think the mortgages are, are bearable. They don't realise how many mortgages some households are carrying and therefore household debt uh, is, is a much higher burden in some you know, postcodes than, than the APRA yeah, I mean, has any realisation of. You know, so what is this shit? And they, I mean, this they, is one they, of the... They're realising how tight people are financially because there's going so much debt, they can't afford to do you know, the basic shopping. So now the supermarkets are saying, well, let you split the bill on two credit cards. Okay. That is really a sign of how bad things... I wasn't aware of that. And the... Well, I mean, this is just something that I've noticed. I, yeah, because I, I like I, I, So you can actually use two credit cards to go shopping yes, on the one bill. Bloody hell. Okay, that's... A, yes, of course, they've really tightened up those regulations, haven't they? Mm. Uh, and, I mean, my God, you do know that the first home buyer's grant is back again. Oh, yeah. I call it first home vendor's grant. Yes, you do. Even and Terry McCran agreed with me on that one. It caused, um, you know, it just it inflated. I mean, okay, so the other reason, though, the other reason 
And, you know, things are shit for somebody you know in Australia. And mm. even if they're not financially shit, everything, you know, like I I just get the vibe like mm. a an anthropologist might call it a time of anomie. Mm. It's a time of normlessness. You see shocking th- things that shock you and don't appear to shock other people. There is no common language. And, in fact, there's no, in my view, sensible language in the so-called public square, like fucking public square, like who gets to talk in the public square. Uh, you, you know, there's people essentially in Australia, and I know that you can probably, you've probably got better things to do with your time than monitoring Australian discourse, But the argument for the last six months in Australia has been about speech. It's like, we need to outlaw hate speech because hate speech is the true problem. Hate speech is what ends in killing. And so hate speech creates killing um, and disrespect causes murder and all of this nonsense. Like it just doesn't make any sense. So the the so-called progressive position, like their economics are pretty much on a par the Labor and the Liberal Party in Australia. Mm, mm. And the Greens don't know what the fuck they're doing. I mean, there's a couple of decent comrades in the New South Wales hard left, but, like, they've got no fucking clue, right? They just mm. say, oh, nationalise the banks. That'll fix everything. Mm. You know, no systemic understanding as, as, as Steve, who actually is a compassionate person but doesn't feel like he needs to tell you that all the time because you can't be bothered, right? <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I've, in some ways I've given up on Australia, be, to be frank. I um, That's a personal thing, but it is a really fucking stupid country. Yeah, I mean, the classic, the old uh, lucky country, Never, nobody's ever, ever read Donald Horn properly on that front, and they think, no. oh, we're lucky, aren't we? Yeah, what it was is we're, we're, a, we're a country, a lucky country that relies upon on, on luck to make up for mediocre management. Yeah, if you if and you if you don't know it, like people say, "Oh, Australia, it's the lucky country," and it was actually yeah, a put down by Donald Horn like, about yeah, reliance upon. Yeah, you fucking got lucky. You. And I, I actually saw that firsthand when I took a bunch of uh, Southeast Asian journalists for a tour here thirty something years ago. We went to the board of B- 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 BHP, and we got a presentation by each of the head divisions of uh, the company. And we asked them, "What's going to? What are you going to do next?" The answer from all but one of them was. Oh, it's really hard to know what the market's going to do next, so we'll just sort of see what the market does and but go no, that way. Fucking change is what the, it'll this do this when you bail out the fucking room. Yeah. Relying upon luck. Yeah. I want to get back to are they stupid or evil or on drugs shortly, but there is this idea and you will find it in, in uh, labour policy, like underscoring labour yeah. policy. It is my view as a former journalist, well, as a journalist with a, with formerly a shred of uh, credibility now none because I'm Putin's puppet like you. Yeah, you Steve Keen, watch him on Russia Today. Nearly every opportunity. Oh, look, I'm world famous in Russia, and pro Pakistan, and India, and Turkey. That's where I get my niche coverage from. It's quite hilarious. Yeah, one, one are you on shows... TRT, the Turkish state media as uh, well? No, it's called. Cool. Well, there's, well, there's uh, a press. The show called the Money Money Talks. Right. Out of Istanbul. I got on press TV, which is out of Iran. Yeah, because you're you you. In, in, oh, in, oh, right. A gold star for you. Mm. Um, have you got on Venezuelan television yet? Not yet. No, no, I haven't scored. It's Venezuela. like my dream gig. Oh, right, Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, feel, I mean those poor bastards. Mm. Seriously. Anyway, so much to talk about. So little time. Helen has so little rationality left in her head because I did actually take a t- took my frequent flyer points, took a plane. I had enough for a business class flight, which felt very empty. 
until they started giving me the alcohol. I've had a few alcohols, so, mm-hmm. you know, bear with me. The other argument about capitalism is that it is essentially balanced. Now, whatever your view, and it might be a view that's quite sophisticated, you might be very anti-debt, you might think that the problem is only financialization. And that, and that banks have put everything out of balance. You might not even think that banks have put everything out of balance because there's a few criminals in there. No, it's not individual action. It's collective. So even if you think that, though, like there is this idea that capitalism is balanced because it's an exchange. There's, there's, a, mm, there's yeah. a commodity or a service for sale and then there's somebody to buy it, ergo, Capitalism is always in balance. Like, what the fuck does that mean? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, look, to there's, me. there's there's a, there's a simple uh, objective fact that is distorted into complete nonsense, and that is for every buyer, there's a seller. So therefore, yes. there's balance. Now, the, the trouble is, um, the, there's an, there must be a buyer for a seller. That's that's an absolute given. But to say that, therefore, the demand and supply for goods and services is balanced is nonsense because if you don't sell as many Lamborghinis as you make in one day, the stock of Lamborghinis rises. Mm. The stock is where the difference has occurred. And this is what's left out of conventional thinking. They think everything is a spot market. And just as there's, you know, you and I, if I, if I sold bad, this is Knackers, isn't it? Yes, Knackers. I sold, knackers, I sold knackers back to you. Uh, then, you know, the price you pay, uh, I price I if I buy it off you, the price money I pay to you is money coming out of my wallet, exactly the same going to you, therefore there's balance. No, it just means there's been a, one particular buy, so, sale and, 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 and per, purchase that's equivalent. But the ag- aggregate, when you get to the lot, there can be many more of these made in one day than anybody can sell. Or there can be a fall in demand for them. Mm. So they, they make the mistake that identity of buyer and seller to mean in the aggregate buying and selling is in balance, and that's completely wrong. And Adam Smith was clearly a gentleman who needed his wing-wang squeezed far yeah. more often. Yeah. Oh, constipated. But, um, you know, the two things that we all know, because, like, don't try to read The Wealth of Nations. It's shit boring. Like, it's 900 pages long, and it's mm-hmm. just, I don't know, read the Wikipedia. Well, actually, I reckon Adam Smith's where it all went wrong. Uh, yeah, so a bit. Um, so the the two things most people know about Adam Smith are the idea of the the very efficient pin factory, mm. where there's this division of labour and you can make things very efficiently. Which you know Marx also talks about. Although then he develops this theory of like, well, that makes you a bit fucked up in the head, doesn't it? Which is true because you know we've agreed that all human beings like to make things, and when they're doing mm. the same repetitive small labour in which they have no true buy-in other than, mm. well, these days, like, uh, mm. uh, you know, some uplifting slogans in your fucking break room about, mm. yeah, we're empowering you to work harder mm. and, you know, like, be your best self. Like, fuck off, be my best self. No, like most jobs I've had, I've been about like 25% of my best self because that's what they deserve, really. Mm. But so you, they know the thing about the, 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 the pin factory, like so this great example of like, you know, mass production innovation isn't capitalism great. Yes, Steve and I agreed that for 100 years capitalism has been really innovative, 100 years. No, it, it goes back It goes back to the, really it goes back to the uh, invention of the steam engine. 
that's the real, that's the innovation that really marked the beginning of capitalism as a powerhouse. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of argument about this. I know that much. Like, there's a lot of argument about when, you know, the current age, but who knows? We may mm. be in some kind of other age now. Yeah. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know. Uh, but it has, the innovation has very much slowed down. Yeah, right? it has, yeah. And then, and that's like the massive, the best innovative period for a, uh, modern capitalism was what they call the golden age from 46 to 66. And that's when you saw the most innovation in capitalism. And it was immediately after the Second World War, which wasn't actually a capitalist enterprise. It was, you know, state. state. Uh, it was a combination of the two, okay? But, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just about, like, we won't stand for Nazism, no, was no, it? No, no, no. It, wasn't, it was, uh, you know, but if, if, if you can trace it back to the First World War. Yeah, yeah. oh, see. Yeah. All right. I can go a long way back, but I you won't. You can. But 46 to 66. That's the, the top period of innovation in capitalism, and it coincided with the lowest level of debt in capitalism for some substantial time. Hmm? Graeber, your yeah. mate Graeber, because he's more of a culture bloke, he actually talks about this sense of psychological loss that people have because, um, you know, particularly people of a certain age, you know, mm. people, uh, you and me actually born in the 1960s, mm. where, you know, I mean, there was the fucking space race and, mm. you know, and uh, jets. And now you look at the inside of jets from 1960s movies and then you look at them today and they're virtually identical except people don't dress up anymore. Mm. I, I, and, uh, you know, my uh, the lady who gives me a vaginal wax, you know, because I like I'd, to keep myself – that's a good innovation, capitalism. Yeah, that's okay, okay. Thanks yeah. for that. I, I don't um, think there's a male equivalent, is there? Uh, no, there is. Um, I don't want to have it. Okay. Yeah, the back sack and crack. You you can get it all over Sydney. Manscaping, it's called. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not keeping yourself nice, are yeah, you? Yeah. So. Um, I got lazy. Yeah. So you know, my my uh, beauty therapist, she um, runs a small business, her only, right? And she just was so tired from cleaning and whatnot, and she just said, "Where is my robot cleaner?" And, you know, you, you you could say, well, where the fuck is my jetpack and my robot cleaner? Mm, mm. Like, it's slowed down. So um, much. Yeah. Uh, Moore's Law, the idea that, you know, computer, home computer capacity will increase by what was it, 100, 200%, whatever. Every 18 months. Yeah, yeah. Or year or Moore's whatever law. it was. Yeah. Moore's Law stopped in t- 2013. and Something like that. Yeah. I know. I had this um, fun uh exchange on social media with this bloke um, where we were talking about like the, um, not in a deep way, but it, uh, about how the major innovations of the age seem to be like financial products, right? Yeah, yeah, we've gone financial engineers, not real engineers. And I want to liberate the real engineers from the finance well, parasites, which is what they really end up being. Yeah, like, I mean, the true innovation of, of Uber is not some natty little app, which is, you know, virtually identical to many others, mm. but it's like you know, resting control of, of, of the market. Mm. You know, I mean, Netflix is soon to stop making such extraordinary programming, blah, 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 like innovation, except perhaps of the cultural kind, has really, really stopped. And uh, so this exchange that I had with this guy and he was like, well, because, you know, Steve Jobs, bit of a prick, right? But, again, one of those kind of like wide-eyed innovative idiots who was like, I'm going to change the world. I mean, even if it was, you know, making more making computers more accessible for people with a disability, he did do that. They're still very, very expensive. But, you know, he did a lot with usually already available technology. Mm. Since Jobs died and Cook 
the finance guy has taken over. This guy said to me, because it's a cute gag, I should attribute him. I'm sorry I can't remember your 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 Twitter handle. But he just said, yeah, what's Tim Cook given us in the last seven years except for winking emojis? Mm-hmm. Like it used to be, do you remember when like, so it's only been like just over 10 years since smartphones happened. Mm. First time they were like, wow, these are pretty handy. And my God, this update, so much more powerful than mm. the last. It's not, my smartphone is not getting smarter. No. And in fact, I'm getting dumber. Clearly mm. here on Knackers, Knackers, Knackers and the Vag, 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 where I am joined by Steve Keen. We have covered perhaps some of the, would you say in, in, in fundamental terms, because I, I want to uh, talk to you and, and, you know, get y- you some basic understanding of not only how the forces of economics affect you and shape you. There's more than that, of course, you know, but how they, how they shape you, how they determine your existence, you know, just so you can embarrass some assholes, which is what Steve did. Which is one of the reasons, and I'm sorry, do you mind talking about your exit, your departure from? No, that's fine. Okay. So, yep. yeah, you, you, you've told the story uh, many, many times, but you were working and I, I believe because, you you know, you're a working class chip on your shoulder kind of bloke, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a, this may be meaningful to you, you were a student of um, Frank Sitwell. Yep, um, yep. This is um, a very important time remembered by most leftists, anarchists, radical people at the University of Sydney. Um, a bunch of students and radical lecturers got together. This is a very short version, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and demanded that economy and 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 politics, like mm. society, the way we actually live, you know, have a department. Yep. And so he certainly, you know, changed you a lot. Um, and then, you know, you've got a pretty good CV. You go out to Western Sydney. Western Sydney, if you're listening overseas, it's like the poor bit of a hugely overpriced city built mm-hmm. on stolen land. And you, you teach out there. And you're teaching what is not often taught at universities. And the, the political economy department survives yep. at Sydney University, but only just. Mm. And you actually like teaching, I think, right? Yeah, I enjoy teaching. Um, you have this weird mentor thing going on. You actually like educating people. Mm, strange, but true. I mean, you've been talking to me for five hours and I'm <laughs> clearly um, not up with it. Um, but you will give of your time. You will talk to almost anybody. Like there's about 5,000 YouTubes of you. Something you know, of that order. It's yeah, ridic- yeah. Yeah. And you, you will talk to these people because maybe they'll say something interesting. And also maybe I'll reach somebody I wouldn't reach otherwise. Like I'm doing documentary now on climate change, courtesy of talking, uh, I think it was to Macro Voices. Yeah. Um, and just one but, thing and bang, off comes a so, – so you can't tell what's going to work. Back to Western Sydney, you're giving people an education and, I, you know, I've heard some feedback from the students. They were having perhaps quite a fulfilling time. You know, they weren't learning about like balance and mm. – uh, that, that is inevitable. And they weren't learning this embedded morality. They were actually thinking about how uh, the coercive forces mm. of the conditions of their survival, which yep. is capitalism, where you don't have a choice, like unless you're a very gifted woman of the land. I mean, I would die if you put me in like, I mean, past Anzac Parade, I die, darling. No, mm. I mean, I can't survive in nature. We ha- You have no choice. So you're actually... 
You're teaching a melange, uh, maybe political economy, like actually situating economics where it should be, which mm. is with fucking human lives. Mm. Right? What's the point of just banging on about nonsense, really? Mm. No, I mean, it doesn't even deserve the term dismal science, does it? No, it certainly doesn't deserve the word science. It does oh, deserve, God, no. deserve the word dismal. It does deserve a slap is what it deserves. Yeah. And so you were actually quite rewarded by this experience? Like, yeah, I enjoyed it immensely, but it's... Um, did you get any uh, kids up to, like, master's or, or doctoral level? Oh, yeah, I've got a few, quite a few master's students and uh, a number of PhDs and some of them are uh, doing extremely good work that I wish was still being uh, supported and developed in universities, but they've sensibly decided that working in the private sector was much better. I, I tell my students these days, don't... Uh, don't become an academic, do a PhD for interest if you like, but learn how to make coffee and become a barista and you'll have more spare time after you make your coffee to get decent research done than you'll ever get at university. Yeah, I mean, because you've got to live, right? You've yeah. got to create the you make You get better money as a barista these days and have more free time to get research done. So what happened, uh, look, long story short, I like Michael Hudson's version is that Steve Keane was understood as to be so demonic by the University of Western Sydney that they shut the whole economics department down. That's story- what I call an exaggeration. Okay, but I like <laughs> Michael Hudson's version. We'll just go with that. It's a long story. We'll have to get into Labor Party policy and then, you know, blah. Mm. Okay, so there were a number of reasons, but they did shut it down. And at around about the same time, you I don't know how, if you want to give any background of what was actually happening in your life at the moment, because we kind of, we've kind of got friendly, you and me. Like we mm. have stupid conversations on Skype every there we now go. and then. Yep. Like yep. I've given up pretending that I'm interviewing you for a purpose. I'm just um, like yeah, having yeah. a chat. So a thing happened. A thing happened. Please describe the thing. This is the, the reason that you are best known in Australia. The reason you should be best known is that you said, oh, huge financial mm. disaster coming. We've got to reset the economic software. One of, what is it, six, six, 12, something like that? Oh, Dirk Bessemer found 12 of us. There's more than 12, but about 12 who prominently had a, said there's going to be a financial crisis and had an explanation that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. And the answer is not in the big short. No. 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 It was large organisation. Uh, you, you can't rationalise, you know, you can't have a nice conversation with the system. You can't look at, you know, capitalism or any kind of form of, you know, uh, governance of a nation and say, behave yourself yeah. because it involves people, right, yeah, yeah. and change uh, and urges and all of, all of this shit. And so, okay, so you made this prediction, biggest prediction in like 80 years. But you said a thing that you shouldn't have said. About property prices, yeah. And what did you say? So, again, I was being interviewed by Kerry O'Brien in the 7.30 report for half the show. And was, was Kerry reasonable? Kerry was fabulous. Yeah. Kerry was great. And uh, one of the questions he asked me was, what's going to happen to property prices, given your predictions about the economy? What were you on to talk about? Uh, about economics. About yeah. the, because Kerry was reading my debt deflation blog. And uh, and seeing my analysis yeah. of why I thought a crisis was coming and so on. Yeah, he actually read shit. Kerry. He's good now, Kerry. You know, he deserved the accolades he's he's gotten got very recently, of course, in the recent awards. Uh, but he was asking me about economics in general, and then one of the questions was, "What does this imply for property prices?" And I'd barely even 
talked about it. I was trying to stop the, you know, an economic crisis. I wasn't worried about a property crisis, so to speak. And you, you, you'd you been living this, you know, real, I mean, not that you've been like this all your life, but you've been living this relatively, uh, I guess, sort of like uh, noble existence, you know, where you were, uh, you know, actively teaching, very passionate about it and perhaps were not like up with the media, up with what had started to occur in Australian media, um, you know, you, you're kind of like not necessarily absorbing a lot of media. No, you're no. busy with your work. So yeah. you're on the 7.30 report. Kerry O'Brien, who actually took a personal interest in uh, not just you but the things that were happening, something mm. that I see very much absent in nearly any ABC broadcaster I can name, in fact, any understanding other than the one that is acceptable seems to be forbidden. You'll, but you know, so I, I, Brian, who hasn't worked there for years, ask your question. You offer your opinion, and the answer was about here. So, what's it imply for property prices? And I said, well, Japan property prices in Japan fell forty percent in the ten to fifteen years after their bubble economy burst in 1990, and I see no reason why we'll avoid the same fate. Yeah, and we're down at like Japanese kind of, we're down like near Japanese interest rates now. Oh, yeah. Well, might yeah. Be another thing I've said, like when I, when I saw the crisis was inevitable, uh, what I saw happening was the, what I call turning Japanese, you know, the double entendre there, of course. Yes. Um, if you are under 80, you will not remember that brief pop Turning song. Japanese, I really think no, so. No, don't. Don't. Sorry. Don't you know the only <laughs> the only people who are listening to this are young. That's true. You know, okay, well, like people the, our age. The vapors, guys. Like, it's called the vapors. Go check out the song. Um, no, don't don't bother. No, yeah, there are one it. hit wonder. There's much better music from the eighties. One hit wonders are sometimes worth he's listening clearly, to. He's clearly he's clearly got no taste in <laughs> you know uh, in either the labor theory of value or nineteen eighties pop songs. There's far better things I could talk for hours. Dun, 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 no, no, no. I'm the rock snob. You Sorry, don't know. I'm the- <laughs> Actually, that that single was produced by Bruce Foxton from The Jam. The Jam? Mm. Well, that explains why it's so good. Okay. Yeah, they're okay. I'm more of a Clash girl. Mm. Well, yeah. they're both good. No, the Clash shit on The Jam. Mm. Anyway, all right, so you say this thing and you say this thing about Sydney property prices and you, you know, you argue the thing, O'Brien actually interested I actually would tune into the 7.30 report of that because he actually knew things that I didn't know mm. and you couldn't always predict what he was going to say because mm. he didn't have all the information. He'd actually done his job as a journalist. You said this thing. You argued it. O'Brien wasn't because I think that the footage is still available on YouTube. It's not embarrassing. It's perfectly reasonable. O'Brien's not particularly surprised but what happens is that there's well, this kind of you know, carnival of stupid that unfolds. Um, And I know people actually who say, why do you talk to that guy? You know, he makes wrong predictions. Yeah, I mean, my whole game is making predictions. What I'm about is saying economic theory is crap and if we manage capitalism using mainstream economic theory, we'll fuck up the economy and fuck up the planet. But no economist really makes like, no economist worth their, their salt or their education or their passion would make a call unless they actually saw urgent reason to, to make it. Like you didn't just say, oh, it can be a GFC, right? And you were specific- No, I, I said, like I, 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 the reason I got into that was that I, my thesis, my PhD thesis was on financial instability. Yeah. I then wrote Debunking Economics and I got involved in about a five-year war with the economics profession over some of my arguments there. And I was asked to do a court case on predatory lending. 
And in doing the court case, uh, I said that uh, this sort of predatory lending leads to bubbles and crashes which affect everybody. So we should, there's reasons to overturn loan contracts. And I looked at the level of private debt to GDP in Australia and I saw this exponential increase in the mm. ratio and I thought, holy hell, this is going to give us a crisis. Do, is, this, is this a global thing? The only other country I could get data for was the USA. I saw the same pattern in the mm. United States. I thought this is going to be a global crisis. Somebody has to warn about it. And in Australia, at least, that's going to be me. And that's why I dived in. Yeah. It was property prices were totally, uh, uh, you know, making a, a call on the property yeah. market. I, uh, what what downs, ensued was it wasn't, it wasn't so much a debate as, you know, you were made a meal of. No, well, um, I mean, it wasn't Kerry O'Brien who did that. Let's get it straight. Yeah. Kerry, I spoke to one day on the 7th. No, no, report. we've made this plain, you know, yeah. that O'Brien was a, a yeah. decent man who actually read things. The property lobby just didn't want to hear any argument against property prices rising forever. And I walked straight into a... Uh, yeah, I know. Okay, so so brevity does not form part of my skill set, but a, a long and fascinating story short, uh, the outrage, um, outrage machine, I believe, is the latest word for mm -hmm. it, uh, that occurs now daily, which the media blame the people for, despite the fact that, you know, basically they keep throwing more garbage on the fire. Mm. Uh, it wasn't such a common thing in 2008, but you were really caught in quite a big one. It was quite remarkable. And there were, well, I mean, a range of things happened, but you may understand or you may know, Steve, as the guy who made a bad call, the, mm. the, the economist who was making a bad call, all so stupid. But, like, it wasn't that stupid. I mean, and you haven't even been wrong yet because you said by 2023. The, the, the way the bet came up was, was talking at Parliament House. Wait, yeah, just, sorry, talk about the bet because hmm? not bet. everyone knows this story. Okay. So, so you did the Kerry O'Brien thing and then there was – Outrage, I think, probably first in um, your News Corp, right? And your News Corp, yeah. But also with Fairfax and other mm. writers saying, you know, how dare he? Because Australia has been enjoying a an rising economic... property prices forever. Yeah. It, well, sure, but sometimes, yeah. I mean, once upon a time, a taxi license plate was worth a lot of money. I mean, it yeah. doesn't mean the house that... price bubble in any sense began in nineteen seventy seven. Took off under Keating, actually. Keating really yeah. turbocharged it. And, of course, um, Costello and Howard here in Australia gave it a good old kick. With halving the rate of capital gains tax and bringing back the first-time vendors grant, yep. And, you know, in, in the Australian ideal imagination, like it's still the 1950s mm. um, and we all have, you know, this perfect home, it's, it's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is a very, you know, emotional attachment, mm. I guess, to the um, the period of full employment, post-war period mm. of full employment when people actually did have, like I'm sure, you know, like Pat probably started with bugger all in her life, but she's got a house, right? Yeah. That was possible yeah. for a brief period in Australia. Uh, get a house, get a job. Only one adult in the house had to work for all those things to be possible. So this was a very brief period, though, right? It had all gone to shit by the 1970s. Yeah, the 1953 uh, was when my parents, uh, like when I was born, 1957, they bought this house, and um, the amount of interest rates they were paying there about it was down about the three to four percent rate. Yeah, and the level of debt you needed was about three times, maybe two and a half times your annual income. 
to buy a house. And you know, generally, well, you know, when we talk about full employment, we talk about full male employment, uh, and you know, we also talk usually about like you know, acceptable men as well. There were people mm. left out of the equation, but it did. It was a good period for many predicated on, you know, the suffering of others, but whatever, whatever, there was a good experience in Australia. We hold on to this dream yeah. of, you know, working for the same company for 40 years. Yeah, and, which my father did. Yeah. And you it, it run, yeah. unemployment was really, really bad when it exceeded 2%. Yeah. Now that would be an absolute dream level to get down to. It all went, it actually, the hell in a handbasket period was 73 to 75. Unemployment rose from about 1% to about 5 and it never fell back down again. Well, now, I mean, underemployment is a huge problem and they just keep saying that it's 5%. Oh, right? yeah, it's total fiction. I mean, they'd, they'd be, every time they've redefined the numbers and a guy called Peter Brain has done the best work on that. And uh, every time they've redefined it by 15, 16 redefinitions at the OECD level, it's reduced the recorded rate of unemployment. Yeah. And so, you know, we, I mean, it's not as though they're lying. It's not as though it's not the truth. It's just the people who um, are responsible for the policy are generally the people that provide the report card, right? And they usually mm. give themselves an A. Yeah. And unemployment is magically always at 5%. Mm. Um, so, you know, Steve had quite the experience. And I mean, I sort of almost feel like I want an emotional personal memoir from you about the experience because it was... Oh, it was a case of being completely uh, distorted. I mean, you yeah. you, you do yeah. feel... Oh, shit, yeah. I mean, you were traumatised, dude. Yeah, I wasn't traumatised. I was like, these fuckers are going to do me over. I, I've, I made the mistake of falling for the bet Without even ever shaking hands, by the way. This is a bet with no shake of hands and no terms agreed. So, so you made a bet. It was oh, a, con, like, it was a con know, job. So you said something. And I realised I'd been conned and it was too late. It got into the public arena between Chris Joy and Rory Robertson. Uh, they were never going to let me get, get away Who from this. Who are those this. guys? A good question. Uh, Chris Joy is a fairly well-known financier. Rory Robertson was a, an economist for, I think at the time, Macquarie Bank. He's now working for one of the other banks. Uh, but they just basically they 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 hoist me up. They would they determine what the terms were. I realised I had no chance to redefine. If I tried to redefine, they'd see me as wheezing, wheeling, weaseling out of the bet. But there'd never been a handshake, never been terms agreed. I thought, fuck you guys. All I can do is turn this to my favour when it finally goes belly up as I knew it would, because of the first time vendors grant under under Rudd. Uh, so I thought I'd turn it into a publicity stunt, which I did with the walk to Kosciuszko. Yeah. And so you walked up Kosciuszko, yeah. even though the, the bet doesn't, you know, no. end until... 2023. 20, and that's but, if you listen to the parliamentary recording, you can hear me saying that over Rory Robinson's voice. You were a stubborn fucker and you, hmm. you would have done that. Yeah, I've been done by bullies before. Another way to go with bullies is you punch back. The extraordinary thing, though, was because I was still working in professional uh, media at the time mm. and... Uh, you know, gradually it just became really difficult to sort of explore these sorts of things. I mean, I felt, you know, inept, you know, talking about political economy. Mm. I don't have a degree in it. I've got a fucking gender studies and English degree. Mm. But no one else is, yeah, I mean, not to toot my own horn. I don't, I'm not that great or anything, but uh, people do read me. I can kind of explain with jokes things after mm. I make the effort to understand them. And no one well, virtually no one is explaining this in a way that's sort of like accessible or humorous or something you might actually want to read, mm. right? Like I'm not going to sit like debunking economics. I'm with you on that. And your comic book? What's mm -hmm. your comic book called? Econ again? Comics. Yeah. Taking yeah. the con out of economics. And, uh, you know, a lot of your uh, written uh, popular visual pro presentations are very accessible, but I am not going to read your 
modeling stuff like I'm <laughs> I'm not you know and so and you know you speak at a level that is beyond most people and you know a rush of words comes and I can talk to you about I could say so Steve what is growth as we define it or I say Steve um what is uh how is money produced and you can go back to mm. Sumeria and that, that can be quite overwhelming so I you know like to talk to people like you to offer an understanding of the present. Mm. But people won't do that. And people took it very, very personally. And I know I could name names, but I'm a nice lady. Oh, how's Bernard? Who just were personally affronted, mm. never really read your theory or your method before mm. dismissing it and say and saying, he's the guy that made the wrong call. Yeah, I know. Now, mm. so... I don't know, and I'm sure, well, I'm not certain that you know. I mean, it's case by case, but there are people who fear that you may be right. Mm. Then there are people who are just aghast that you could say something so offensive, like my house might drop, my Sydney house might drop in value. Like what? Do you have seven houses? What are you going to do? Go and fucking, you know, live in them all? Like mm. houses are for living in, right? They're yeah, not- yeah. That's we've turned we've turned them into bloody speculative vehicles, and they should be places you live in. That's first and foremost what they should be, and make them into speculative assets. Housing bubbles always burst, and they always cause misery in the process. And they mean you end up building far too many residences and not building enough factories. But between you know all of the ultra nationalism. Ta- the children overboard, Tampa, nine uh, eleven, blah blah blah. Mm. Like what? When they were making economic presentations, and little of that is really remembered. I mean, people of my parents' age remember that Peter Costello gave them a lovely superannuation gift, and mm. that's about it. But I recall, and it's actually quite hard to find transcripts, unfortunately, of the things that Howard and Costello said. But there was this implication that we could all be a nation of investors, that yeah. we could all be a nation of rent seekers and that you could turn your house into something marvellous. We could all get rich selling secondhand houses to each other. Yeah. Okay, so again, like how does that work? Because if you have a nation of investors and l- landlords, I mean, who's paying the mortgage and who's, you know. Who's like, actually who's making stuff. Rent and, yeah. Yeah, who's, who's, who's making stuff. It's not possible for us to, to all be the ruling class. No. Really bright people, mostly for emotional reasons, I think, just won't entertain that they say the housing price is what the housing price is because the market decides. Yeah, they've got themselves so – they're so tied into it, it has to work. Otherwise, their retirement plans are up in smoke and and uh, and, their, and their livelihood collapses and they've got to come back to their family and say, I'm sorry, I fucked up. And uh, that desire that it, it continues going on forever – uh, is so visceral that overrules any explanation of well, what 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 might be the logic behind this guy's argument. The logic got completely wiped out in this country, and I just basically gave up on it and thought uh, I'm better off talking to countries where the crisis actually did happen, where they didn't get warnings like mine and didn't suddenly uh, whack on the stimulus as Rudd did, and uh, where, they, where they went through the chastening experience of a financial crisis. But you are also... I guess, I mean, for what little we can say about the Australian character, which is usually defined in terms of what it's not, which is why you hear idiots saying un-Australian, mm. or 
other idiots saying, I'm ashamed to be Australian today. I mean, when were you proud of being Australian? Like, <laughs> yeah, good point. Seriously, fuck off. That's the progressive response. I'm ashamed to be Australian. Like, mm. at what juncture weren't you ashamed, you know, in mm. the last 230 mm. years? It didn't mm. start well. It hasn't gone well. Yeah. But you, I guess I identify you as part of my, my tribe, which mm. is, you know, like white Catholic Shitheads. Yeah, we come out of the Irish, the Irish working class of this country. The Irish, uh, if you look, there's actually a good mate of mine, Tony Moore, uh, written a book on on the uh, Irish, the rebels in Australia. And we were a lot of the places. It wasn't it wasn't the criminals who got sent here. It was the political rebels. Yeah, and the so, Irish political rebels. And so it's a, a lot of people around are like late boomer generation X, uh, who set the policy, who are journalists, mm. and it's like. Can't you remember? I know you came from the same stuff as me. I know you had an experience like mine. Like my mother gave my grandmother a microwave oven in the 1980s and I have a very clear memory of my grandmother just breaking down in tears. Mm. The glory of it. Like I mm. never thought that I was worthy and all of that. She was a, you know, huge laborist. Mm. Uh, male sorters union and and she was like and all of that work was worth it because now I have the science oven mm. and I can warm up my cup of tea mm. and it's like how can you not be our age like be you know the policy class of turds or the journalists mm. and not have had an experience like that or heard something like that like doesn't that tell you that um, your grandparents were really Im or possibly even your parents were really impoverished mm. yeah like it wasn't long ago. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe what has happened in, you know, my parents' generation being the last to enjoy that kind of thing. Like, I recently went and looked at the house I grew up in. It's fucking tiny. Mm, mm. It's, and, you know, their comfort now was established um, and they invested and stuff and started voting liberal. They should say thank you to Paul Keating. But, like, how do people not? How do people think that this state is permanent, that it's always been happening, that it will always happen? Like how, I guess, I, I guess I'm asking, like if a thicko like me who has a huge revulsion for economics and just no real will to understand it, I'd rather bang on about like gender or something, mm. honestly. Mm. The world is falling apart. The West is decaying. It is a time of anomie. I mean, did you see what happened when fucking Notre Dame Cathedral caught on fire? Mm. There's something wrong with this, right? Yeah. Mm. What shocked me was the outpouring of grief. The Guardian ran mm. a piece. Like, the heart and soul of Europe is burnt to ash. Or they did not at the same time as the Gilets Jaunes, like a re-expression of the French Revolution. The peasants have had enough. And, uh, and that was given no coverage whatsoever. And like a, a major uh, part of my interest has been you know, why the Gilets Jaunes is a revolt against the centre, a revolt against the neoliberal it's, period. And it's in the very spirit of Bastille Day, yeah, right? It's absolutely. in the spirit of the French Revolution. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, and Macron is suppressing it with, uh, you know, tear gas and, and riot police. And, and that to me is far more significant. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, so you have that initial stab yeah. of, oh, that's a pretty church. But uh, it's been standing for a long time. It's a constant matter of renovation. Something fucked up. Mm. Uh, my dad's a builder uh, or was a builder. He said, you know, well, you know, sites that are being renovated are very fire prone. You've got to be very careful. Mm. Uh, don't know about their building safety regs. And, you know, mm. he did renovation. So, you know, some, sometimes shit like that happens. So it was an emotional sense. But 
uh, soon after that, it was like people have lost their shit and it was like unified, like people who aren't even Catholics, mm. you know, because I will honour the tradition in the presence of my family, right? Mm. I'll, you know, take Jesus into my mouth and stuff. Mm. So I have some connection with it, but it was just like, oh, well, that's one of many very beautiful buildings. And then while it's happening, several of the world's billionaires have offered huge amounts of money to restore it. And, you know, editorials are being written as the thing is streaming on YouTube. And it's like, fucking settle down. Like, it'll be fine. Mm. Like, I mean, yeah. It's, well, the bigger fire disaster was Grenfell. Well, yes. Which has been completely ignored. The people in Grenfell still haven't properly resettled. So that's, that, that's to me, is far more indicative of what's going wrong in our society than, than Notre Dame. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we focus on trivia these days. But it, it was just so sincere. Right. And oh. for me, it was close to the hysteria. I mean, obviously, much more global scale, fortunately for you. It was similar to the hysteria that greeted you and still kind of like, you know, this is how you are. I'm sure you're aware. I'm not like making you feel bad. Oh. Like you are, you know, that journalists and politicians in Australia think that you are a silly man or a dangerous man or somebody who should yeah, not like my, be. My, my little analogy about that is that there are 150 cars in a race all approaching a roundabout. One, uh, there's, and there's a driver and a navigator in each car and one navigator of the 149 is saying, you're going into the corner too fast, you're going to have an accident. So the driver slams the brakes on, the other 149 crash, mm. you get through the, the roundabout and the driver says, what the fuck are you worried about? We've got through that roundabout fine. It's just, I mean, it's it, it just, doesn't strike me as logical. Like, no, it's not logical. It's visceral, as you're saying. Yeah, again, to say, well, I mean, it's uh, it's a deeply felt ideology and it's yeah. a, v- a very, very emotional response. Yeah. Now, which, in the rest of the world, if you look at the housing bubble and burst that occurred over there, uh, people have been through this experience a bit more chastened. Yeah. Australia managed to avoid it by doubling and trebling the first time owners grant and that happened a week and a half after my talk on, on, on uh, 7.30 report. Uh, all this stuff to restart the bubble. And, you know, I, I wrote a little piece at the time saying, is the problem with Australian house prices that they're not high enough yet? Yeah. Well, it's not. I mean, it's not the first time uh, in history that the way things were mm. are felt uh, and understood as, as a faith, yeah. right? Like people have this faith. And they had that in the 1920s as well. What's going on behind it? It's all financed by credit, financed by too much private debt. You have a bubble and a crash. In under five minutes, please explain this thing that is so often referred to as the Australian economic miracle. It is written about in the New York Times. um, Australia has become an example for other nations because of its unprecedented growth. There is this view. Well, it's not a view. It's a truism. Australia is about to celebrate its uh, 30th anniversary of, um, uh, of uninterrupted growth. Uh, so growth means, you know, you're increasing GDP, increasing yeah. GDP, right? In aggregate, not per capita, because that's been falling for a year or two. Yep. But yeah, it's uh, it's driven by two things. What what uh, the macro business people call the housing, the uh, population Ponzi, the biggest rate of immigration on the planet, and that's in, which not, peaked under Howard. Yeah, yeah, it's still pretty damn high now. Uh, but the other thing is, we've had positive credit all the way through, where we've encouraged households to continue borrowing money. When you borrow money, you don't borrow for the sheer pleasure of being in debt. You borrow to spend. We spend that money into the economy, firstly through buying houses, but then people buying their white goods for the homes and so on. 
And that credit demand has been kept positive for the last 25 years, and that's what's kept the economy growing indefinitely. But if you have positive credit, you've got growing private debt. Yep. And we've now peaked out of that. It's it's now it started to fall back in 2017. Uh, I think everything the government's going to continue trying to pump the level of credit up, but it's now made us the second most indebted uh, household sector on the planet, Switzerland in first place. The price of that continuous prosperity has been continuously growing private debt. So it's it's kind of interesting that this occurred in Australia, where it is so you know very deeply felt. I mean, you even get after um, you know the GFC. Um, Ayn Rand's old boyfriend, uh, Greenspan, saying, well, I guess some of the things that I thought were wrong. Mm. I can't imagine that happening in Australia. No, Australia's powered by smugness. So they've been... And stupidity and denial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And because we managed to avoid the crisis, we didn't learn from it. And consequently, that same smugness has continued and we've continued believing house prices rise forever. Everywhere else, they've both peaked and, and crashed. They've come back up again after the experience, but they've been through a bubble and a crash. And... You, again, you know, something that you deign to care about, the lives of actual people. Mm. So your your assertion is that GDP is, or, or growth, what we call growth, the, mm. the nearly had our 30th birthday of uninterrupted mm. growth, blah, 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 which is never explained. Mm. That growth um, is largely accounted for, but I, th- I think like mining is like 8% or something, but like the biggest portion of it is finance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've got this golden GDP, apparently. People's lives are shit, though, in increasing number. Um, 70% of millennials rent, most of them will likely never own uh, a property. That's what starts falling over, yeah. 40% of the nation rents. Mm. Things are not good. Fascism is on the rise. I live in uh, like the Bagel Belt, the Jewish area of Melbourne. Mm. There's stickers appearing i've never seen that in my life like Mm. like so things aren't good people aren't happy Mm. and so you're just going to keep saying that the way that we're steering the economy and these ideas are fine how the fuck does it happen neoliberalism a philosophy that's all about getting textbook economics right and textbook economics leaves out the role of the banking sector and finance so we think we're on 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 a sustainable trend when looking at you know mining as a source of income or education, et cetera, et cetera, ignoring the contribution of rising debt, which gives us positive credit, uh, and that's what's kept us really afloat, not the other two factors. So so long as we can continue increasing the level of private debt, nothing will go wrong. Okay, so, I mean, I'm all for abandoning private property. And, um, you know, personal property is still fine, but so Mass Revolution, obviously with this incendiary podcast – I'm going to start that. Like I am the You're going to score the revolution. Yeah. yeah. I'm mm. basically Rosa Luxemburg with all the charm of Bernie Sanders. There you go. Okay. So I want that. But you just think, all right, well, we have to keep resetting the software. So UBI, right? Universal basic income. Mm. You think that it might work to save capitalism for a while. You're kind of like, this is a very simple version, but it's like just to keep applying fixes. Like it's, it, things change. Human history always changes. Um, mm. Things are dynamic. There are new forces. Like you have to be an idiot to know that you, that a new technology doesn't sort of devastate the old. You can't always mm. expect there to be jobs and whatnot, right? And mm. you're of the view, I don't know if I'm entirely convinced by this, that um, robots will take significant numbers of jobs. Yeah, I think we've, we've, we've always been going... You know, production's always been more mechanised over time. 
And what mechanize, the reason that happens is because human labor is limited to how many calories we can consume and output as work. And we have a physical limit, and that's it. Whereas machinery, once you invent a machine that can do a job humans used to do beforehand, you can add more and more energy to that, process more energy efficiently. And so, yeah, so yes, he doesn't uh, he doesn't believe in the, the the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. No, that's a bit Andrew Kleiman nonsense. <sighs> Anyhow, <laughs> so you're for fixes. This is for you a a, a real. I'm not a revolutionary. I'm somebody who believes that. Uh, Human society evolves over time, and you try to go through revolutionary change. The maelstrom of revolution is so extreme that what comes out the other end is nothing like what you might dream it will be. And uh, so in that sense, yes, I'm trying to save society from what would be revolutionary fate because I don't think it'll be a total fuck-up. But what I do expect is we've gone so far down the ecological catastrophe route that we are going to go through a, a period of drastic social change, and it won't be pretty. Uh, like you've ever saw the movie The Time Bandits? Ever seen that yes, one? Yes, I have. Okay, my favourite punchline for a poster: like all the dreams you've ever had, and not just the good ones. Yeah. Okay, that's what I expect for our future. Oh yes, I mean it looks far worse than The Hunger Games, and nobody's attractive. We all look very, very bad, and mm, our skin mm. is singed off. Mm. And a few billionaires get to go to Mars. And that's what I fear: the Hunger Games is the fate if we don't have something like a UBI ultimately. Okay, so the UBI will work for how long? Like you don't think that it's a fix-all magic thing for all Capitalism time? Capitalism never, is never stable, but the only way we're going to survive as a species ultimately, this is where I become a bit okay, of so, a… Okay, so UBI, um, most of, you probably know what it is, but universal basic, basic income, income yeah. uh, it's a hot topic um, and one of the reasons that people think that it, 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 it could work is, well, there's some very powerful fans of it like… Uh, Bill Gates, that economic expert, um, is saying, well, the, well, one, he's saying we should tax robots and, two, he's saying UBI. It depends. You know, it depends what they've asked him to say at Davos. Um, Elon Musk, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg gives it support. So there's a number of, like, eminent US oligarchs mm. saying that this is what should happen and people of genuine influence who, you know, run the largest companies in history and there's mm. many politicians and then you kind of, like, pro progressive-ish parties like the Greens will say, oh, UBI. Well, one day with the Australian Greens, it's UBI. The next day it's like modern monetary theory, right? And it's like job guarantee. Mm. Uh, so you don't think that it's – okay, the things you like about it I think are that it will stop like the, you know, the hideous nightmare of wel of welfare, like state-controlled welfare because you give everybody the same amount of money, right? Mm. But this relies on taxing corporations and, uh, you know, like taxing wealth and taxing investment, doesn't it, to fund it or or not? But the government's got this, the MMT, modern monetary theory, uh, understands accounting. That actually is the basis of money creation. And in that sense, the government can create as much money as it wishes to. It's the consequences of the creation of money that matter. Yeah, what are, but what are the global consequences? If you make more money, like if our central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, mm. decided to print more money, right? And so most of the money in Australia is actually created by banks, isn't it? Like yep. private banks. Yep. Uh, because of that accounting. Could you the, just explain that quickly for me? Okay. Well, money money is fundamentally what money is, 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 is the amount of money in our deposit accounts. Okay. That's, that's what most money is these days. 
And money banks create money by giving you a loan, which means they say, that's a great idea, Helen. Here's a million dollars to buy a house in Turak or wherever you, where you could buy it these days. A million dollars at, would at, not get you at a minute, I think. At a minute, more likely. Here's a million bucks to buy a place in Adaminibi. By the way, you owe us a million bucks. So accounting operation, they increase their assets by giving mm. you a new loan. They increase the amount of money in your deposit account by putting it in your account. You then give it to the house vendor. Uh, it creates demand, creates money. I don't see how, I mean, this idea that banks create the value of a house is it just like, you know, makes total sense. Yeah. Read and petty for the production of money yeah. for more, right? Yeah. Okay, so the government can create money. So most most money is 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 created by uh, uh, banks, shadow banks. Mm, yeah. Uh, I saw in the uh, magazine The Investor or something, it was encouraging uh, like private firms to like take over the private mortgage market because there was great investment opportunity. It seems like a really bad idea. Mm, yep. Especially like we're supposed to be tightly regulated now in Australia. But Okay, so banks create most of the money, but what could happen is so the the modern monetary theorist says that the the central bank could suddenly create like even more of the money, right? Mm. Put, like just make more money out of thin air. Why not? But what does that do to other currencies in other countries? Well, the thing, if we actually did a large amount of money creation in Australia, most of it would go overseas in imports. Yeah, but say the U- United States, which is still like the major power in the world, um, decides to create more money to go along with everything else. Couldn't it like devalue the currency seriously of other nations and fuck them up? Yeah. Like it's it can't like be. I, I differ from MMC on the whole and the impact of uh, when you take it international. Okay, they pretty much don't worry about the trade deficit. I do, and they think actually a trade deficit's a good idea because you're um, importing more than you're exporting, and you're paying for products from overseas with pieces of paper, and they reckon that's a good idea. And I think that's nonsense. Sorry, I don't understand how this will not worsen the plight of people in the in the global south and possibly elsewhere. Like if Western nations are doing this UBI, oh, luxury, we've all got a day off. No, like there's no way it works at a global scale because we're consuming too much of the planet's resources already. But you care about the world. Why would you Why would you say UBI then? Because I think ultimately there's no way that the working class is going to get a salary. Okay, what I see is a world in which there's no longer any power for labour whatsoever to negotiate for a share of what we physically produce on this planet. And unless we have something where you get an income not because of work but because you're simply a citizen, yeah. we're not going to have a sustainable society in the future as the Hunger Games. So whenever I ask you about these things because I'm like, Steve, I can't work something out or you talk to somebody else about it, you, mm. you're always like, this may work for 10 or 15 years. But I still see, like, I mean, there's a few questions I have about uh, universal basic income, which everybody loves on left and right and is comparable to, uh, first, I think it was proposed by... Thomas Paine, right? Yeah. Uh, Milton Friedman's uh, negative income tax mm. is uh, very close to the the idea. But, okay, so one, like we live in a hugely, or I live in a hugely racist territory, uh, non-citizens, you know, and there's many in Australia, you mm. know, will not get uh, universal basic income. It will be confined to citizens. So the... They'll be fucked, right? Won't they? And then the rich people who get it will just turn it into more capital. So that could conceivably. Like I'm just thinking, uh, looking at the direction of human 
society over time, presuming we have survived the ecological crisis the sea is going through. Uh, in that future, the only way we're going to make production sustainable is doing it off planet. Now you can't. Oh, look, baby, no, look, I'm why, sorry. Why, why, can't, why can't we make the resources of the future publicly owned? Like, how is that that's impossible? That's what I'm talking about doing. If you have a UBI, you're pretty much saying it's the state, uh, you know, the collective enterprise we're part of, giving enough for everybody to live. Uh, it's fundamentally. But think about the other consequences. You hmm. know, like Pat, your mum, hmm. who's 94. She went with you to uh, the march against um, you know, John Howard's actions on, on Tampa, right? Mm -hmm. You feel deeply about this shit. Yeah. What will happen to already immiserated refugees, for example, in Australia? They will not get UBI. Why not? Because they fucking will. I mean, where is the political will, right? That's like, what I'm trying to raise. I'm trying to raise the political will. I'm saying it's not here right now. But Unless we get it, we're going to be fucked. We're going to end up in a Hunger Games future. Okay, so we're going to let the state, like, give us enough money to possibly pay my rent, right? I can pay my rent to uh, to my landlady, right? So she can just keep making money clear on her investment. How does that – I mean, are you just talking about a short period no, of no, stabilisation? No, I'm talking about a realisation that humanity we, – we are getting – if we survive as a species, and I have my doubts about that, if we survive as a species, we're going to reach a point where the working class will have no capacity to earn an income out of being the working class. So how do you get people who don't own capital enough to stay alive, have a life? It does depend on some people shifting their ideas radically. Exactly. And, I don't know, optimism for the people, pessimism for the political process. Mm. We're all going to die in the meantime, read a decent heterodox economist, a man who was fucking unreasonably accused of even trying to rig the property market just because he said what is apparently happening, that the housing market in Australia would, you know, that the house price in Australia mm. would drop. Mm. I am a naif, you are an expert, but I will read and I would love to talk to you next time you're in Australia when okay. you can tolerate it mm. um, about U UBI. I find that it's an attractive idea to so many unpleasant people that that's reason yeah, enough. Yeah, that's dangerous. To I agree. It. Okay, a lot of a lot of a lot of unpleasant people have ideas that are like of mine as well. Okay, I was I'm not amazed by it. I was I was joking. I'm just looking at the political present. Mm. I'm looking at the. I'm looking two hundred years in the future. Okay. I think we can agree that we're, we've both got utopian projects. Absolutely. You quite rightly have no respect for my economic <laughs> understanding, which is very, very basic. But that is a project to which you are committed and I, I, I respect you for not thinking that people are idiots because people aren't idiots. And thank you for your time. Thank you. And thank you for your time in the once utopian paradise of full employment in southern Sydney. Happy birthday, Pat. I, you know, you could probably charge people a lot for, you know, this shit, right? You should do some <laughs> corporate work or something, but you, you've done this for nothing. Just the price of a bottle of Drambuie. Thank That'll you. That'll do anyone nicely tonight. All right. Yeah, read his books and shit. Give him some money on Patreon. But give me some first. You've been listening to Knackers and the Vag. <laughs> <laughs>